Well, I guess we're going to start early, Dad. Sorry about that. Okay. I hit a button wrong, and the timer is off, ladies and gentlemen. If you are late to church, you're not actually late. You're just not early. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Newark UPC Digital Campus on Wednesday night. And it is the last day of March, and it is our privilege to have Brother Roy Moss with us tonight to do our Bible study. But before we get started on that, let me run down a few announcements for you. And so the first thing that I want you to, to uh, recognize and realize, if you haven't already, is that Easter is upon us. Ladies and gentlemen, we are fast approaching Easter. And uh, part of that is that we are going to have a virtual communion service. We did this last year. In fact, Dad, weren't you the one who uh, presided over that? Last year, yes. That's exactly right. So the reason we're mentioning it to you now, it is important that you gather together the necessary uh, goods that are needed to celebrate communion. And let me take a moment here, particularly since we started just slightly early as folks are joining in, to remind you that Jesus used what was at hand. Uh, he was at supper, he was eating, and it did happen to be unleavened bread that night because, in fact, uh, they were celebrating uh, a, a supper during the season of unleavened bread during Passover season, and uh, but I'm not sure that the remembrance of his body and the remembrance of his blood, the sacrifice that he did at Calvary, that was going to happen in just a few short hours, was really about unleavened bread and about wine, but more it was about a symbol. And in fact, we that's where we diverge with the with the Catholic tradition of transubstantiation. We do not believe it turns into the literal body and the literal blood of the Lord, but rather we are marking it or we are remembering him. We are celebrating what he did for us. And so I really, uh, you can use your own creativity, whether you're going to use yourself some dry saltine crackers or you're going to use yourself a loaf of bread, your favorite kind of bread, or whether you're going to go and bake yourself some unleavened bread, similar to what we have when we're in person in church, or what kind are you going to get purple or white grape juice? Uh, you can use your choice there, or are you going to use some soda? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to knock you out. Basically, you need something that will symbolize his body and symbolize his blood. You're not literally taking the Lord's body or the Lord's blood. And so uh, we want you to have those preparations in place so that when we join together uh, this coming Sunday night uh, at seven o'clock and we have that uh, celebration of Easter that we are ready also to uh, celebrate as but has been our tradition communion at that same time. So just mention that to you. You want to join in. You don't want to miss that broadcast. Very special time. And by the Lord's grace, it will be the last time, at least for a little while, that we will celebrate communion virtually, because hopefully the next time that we celebrate communion, we'll be able to do so in person. And uh, we may have a little bit of a problem. I've, I've joked, Dad, that we've got a real challenge coming. Uh, number one, when we come back together in church, the real challenge is going to be everybody's used to talking all during church. They just chatter, 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 constantly talking. I'm going to have a Corinthian church by the time I get done coming back from <laughs> From this uh, this uh, quarantine, we come back to a Corinthian church. I used to thank the church for not being like the Corinthians that were loud and noisy and raucous. And and man, by the way, the chat goes, they're loud and raucous, Dad. So we've, we've got a challenge coming back. And uh, one of them may be that when we come back and we celebrate communion, I'm going to have people coming up saying, wait, I, I don't want grape juice. I want Pepsi or I don't want uh, bread. I, I want I want a goldfish or, or something like that. So we may have a little bit of fun trying to yeah. navigate back. But seriously, join us this coming Sunday night, seven o'clock. You don't want to miss it. We will have a special guest and uh, some of you will recognize our guest. Um, and I promise you, you will not want to miss this service. Um this guest is extraordinary, particularly in the context mm -hmm. of, of communion. And I'm very much looking forward to this person's contribution to our Easter celebration. So don't want to miss that at all. If you're new to us, now I see we're actually past seven o'clock. Folks are joining in. If you're new to us, welcome. You have joined the new RQPC digital campus broadcast. And this is a Wednesday night. This means we will go one hour. So our format tonight, if you're new to us, is we will have a Bible study uh, by Pastor Roy, and then we'll follow that up for about 30 minutes. Then we'll follow that up with question and answer time afterwards that you can live uh, submit 
either on YouTube or on Facebook, whichever channel is your preference. And so I look forward to uh, marshalling those. I'm your host. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. But if you're new to us, you can find out a whole lot more about us by going to newarkupc.info. And if you go there to that website, you can find out all kinds of things. We are very excited, not this week, but next week we start into our second quarter small groups and they will be meeting every other week uh, on Tuesdays and Thursday evenings. So you can see the schedule with regard to that. If you're not already a part of a small group, you can fill out a card and join a small group. We look forward to uh, seeing you there. Uh, all of the meeting info, the Zoom info is there. The schedule, you can partner with us in giving. There's just a host of information that's available to you. I would encourage you, if you're new or newer to us, that you would go and explore newarkupc.info. If you happen to have found us by going to newarkupc.org, you can see some information there. But the real meat and potatoes of who we are and how we're operating, particularly during COVID, can be found at newarkupc.info. And uh, we repeat this every broadcast. So those of you that normally watch, you probably can repeat the mantras along with us. But hopefully it's getting through your head. And by the way, church, I will tell you, when we get back in person, when you have a question, do you know what we're going to tell you even in person? We're going to ask you a question. Have you gone to newarkupc.info? There's a whole lot of things that are not coming back to the church service. They are going to stay right there at newarkupc.info. And you can still make yourself available to them. All right. With all of that said, I'm looking forward to tonight. We are in the midst of a series dealing with a religion of fools or a religion for fools. or And uh, we're really looking at these various elements leading up to the crucifixion and then ultimately the burial and then Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. And things didn't look so good at the beginning, did they, Dad? They, uh, they seemed like um, Jesus had really failed. He pulled together a bunch of losers uh, even some of his choices, I think you're going to be exploring some of that tonight, doesn't quite make sense. It looks like a loser move, and yet all of that is coming to the most powerful moment, I say, in all of human history, namely the cross. And then, but it's still, even that most powerful moment looked like a loss. It looked like a failure. And then three days later, of course, we're going to see that powerful moment of the resurrection, which we'll celebrate Sunday. So I'm going to drop off the broadcast real quick here and uh, turn this over to Pastor Roy. Everybody sit back and enjoy, and I'll be back with you in about 30 minutes to, uh, to host you with regard to your question. Good evening, and let me put a little plug in here of my own about communion next week or next Sunday. Uh, and that is that our guest is, is well known for communion services. And shortly after I moved up here, I was at a meeting in Dallas. And at that meeting, uh, we had communion and he led us in that communion service. And it was one of the most meaningful and moving that I have been in in my life. So uh, join with us. Online, it'll be a little bit different, but uh, we're kind of getting used to a lot of different by this time. Tonight, we are, as uh, Stephen has told us, we are dealing with continuing our series on a religion for losers. And uh, last night, uh, Arash took us to Gethsemane and uh, kind of talked about heading from there to Calvary. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. We're going in a little different direction. I'm going to be laying more groundwork. We, we didn't do this series in chronological order insofar as the teaching is concerned. So tonight in our series on a religion for losers, uh, leading up to this Easter celebration, we'll be studying the triumphal entry. Now, it's not called that in the Bible, but that's what uh, it's uh, been labeled for, I guess, centuries. And, but the way it's labeled and what actually happened makes all of that kind of an oxymoron, a, a self-contradictory statement. Uh, but let's look at it and, and make some comparisons and 
maybe we can figure out was it really triumphal? Uh, we can't touch all of the points that are involved in this. It could be a, a, a multi-week study. But uh, we'll just start, get started, and, and then you can do your own examination. Uh, but first, let's start with uh, a prophecy from Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Now, I did not send this one in uh, to be posted, so just listen to it. It's prophecy from the Old Testament that ties in with what we're doing tonight. And if you listen, you'll find that when we do put things up on the screen, you're going to run across this again. And uh, from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning with verse 9, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Verse 10, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're one of those people who thinks that uh, the Bible is all chronological and just uh, flows from time to time to time, I've got news for you. There's a long time between verses 9 and 10. But we're especially looking at verse 9 tonight about the Messiah, the chosen one, coming to Jerusalem and revealing himself by riding into town on a donkey. Now, I'm going to read from the New Testament, and we'll be going to Matthew. But this story is also found in Mark chapter number 11. Luke chapter 19, and in John chapter 12. So we've got this uh, story that each of the evangelists, the gospel writers, uh, gave a little different slant on it. If uh, you were standing in a crowd at a parade, you, you would see slightly different than someone else standing across the street or down the block. Uh, so they, their uh, reports are somewhat different, but they're telling about the same thing. And because they're different doesn't mean that they're contradictory. One of them saw and heard one set of, of uh, occurrences. Another saw something slightly different, but still at the same thing. So let's start in Matthew chapter 21. This is a fairly lengthy reading. And uh, we'll be beginning with verse number one. And as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go to the village over there, he said. And as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're saying or doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus had commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and the others and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. 
blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. The crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those uh, selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. So there is the basic story of the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, one thing I would point one of the other uh, writers mentioned that while the entry was still going on before he got to the temple, some of the uh, religious leaders in the crowd tried to get Jesus to have the people to stop making all the noise and, and doing all the praising that they were doing. And Jesus, of course, at that point had told them, if they hold their peace, the very rocks will cry out. But, but keep that in mind that they tried to shut it down while he was still riding in, and then they tried to shut things down again while he was in the temple. So now with that in mind, and you've got the picture, Jesus comes to Jer Jerusalem. He sends a couple of his disciples ahead to get his conveyance for the day, his, his uh, limousine, uh, that uh, donkey's colt. And then he rides into town, not a whole lot of uh, pomp and fanfare and so on, uh, but he's, he's coming in. The people, many of them know what the prophecy is. They see this as a fulfillment of prophecy. They are overjoyed by it. They begin to uh, praise God and, and, and worship. And here he comes riding in plodding in, if you will, on a donkey. Now, <clears throat> over the hundreds of years that Rome celebrated triumphs, and that's where the idea of a triumphal entry comes, is from the Roman culture round about them. The, there were changes in the order of sequence that they, they did things. Sometimes they do this first, and maybe a few decades later, they'd be doing it another way. And uh, sometimes this came first, sometimes something else. But the basic outline, the basic things of a triumph were the same through the centuries. And uh, if you want to learn a little bit about it, you can search on the internet. I happen to have a, a book on manners and customs of the Bible, and uh, it has a, a portion in it describing the Roman triumph. Uh, there are lots of different places you can find them, but the one that I want to uh, use tonight and, and read some of it to you is from uh, the history or the story of civilization it's, I've got a 10 volume set of these and uh, they are history books from our Oriental heritage on up through Russo and Revolu Revolution. Uh, this is volume three, Caesar and Christ. 
And uh, Will Durant, the author of this, who later joined with his wife, Ariel, in finishing out the series, uh, has a good description in here of a Roman triumph. And then he count, he mentions the fact of Roman triumphs something like 29 times in that uh, his treatment of the history of Rome uh, as it relates to what they did and also Jesus Christ. So we find here, uh, this is volume three. This is found on page 82 and 83, and it's about the triumph of a returning general. And uh, I'll start with the quote that only those who were, only those were eligible for it, the triumph, who had won a campaign in which 5,000 of the enemy had been slain. The unfortunate commander who had won with less slaughter received merely an ovation. For him, no ox was sacrificed, uh, merely a sheep, uh, ovis in Latin. Uh, the procession formed outside the city at whose borders the general and his troops were required to lay down their arms. They couldn't go in armed into the city of Rome. Thence it entered through a triumphal arch that set a fashion for a thousand monuments. Trumpeters led the march. After them came towers or floats representing the captured cities and pictures showing the exploits of the victors. Then wagons rumbled by, heavy with gold, silver, works of art, and other spoils. Marcellus's triumph was memorable for the stolen statuary of Syracuse in, in 2012. Scipio Africanus in 207 displayed 14,000 pounds and in 202, uh, 123,000 pounds of silver that was taken from Spain and from Carthage. 70 white oxen then followed, walking philosophically to their death. Then the captured chiefs of the enemy, then lictors, harpers, pipers, and incense bearers, then in a flamboyant chariot. And I'll note that this chariot was pulled by four white horses. Then the general himself came wearing a purple toga and a crown of gold and bearing an ivory scepter and a laurel branch as symbols of victory and the insignia of Jove. In the chariot with him might be his children. Beside it rode his relatives and behind them his secretaries and aides. Last came the soldiers, some carrying the prizes awarded them, everyone wearing a crown, some praising their leader, others deriding them. For it was an inviolable tradition that on these brief occasions, the speech of the army should be free and unpunished to remind the proud victors of their, of their fallible mortality. At one point, there's uh, the story that there would be also riding in the chariot someone, a slave, who would constantly remind the uh, victor, the, the winning general, thou art only a man, or you are yet human, uh, just to keep his head from getting too awfully big. Uh, then back to uh, Will Durant's description of it. Uh, the general mounted the capital to the temple of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, laid his loot at the feet of the gods, presented an animal in sacrifice, and usually ordered the captive chieftains to be slain as an additional thank offering. It was a ceremony well designed to stir military ambition and to reward military effort. Now that ends uh, Will Durant's quote. If you're interested in what a uh, triumph might have looked like, I've uh, brought tonight a copy of the Biblical Arche Archaeological Review, 
And here is on the cover a picture of the Ark of Titus or the Arch of Titus. This stands in Rome and has been there since about 81 AD. And uh, what you see around the sides here, uh, that's the way it really looks. But some archaeologists have done some investigation and dug in deep into the crevices of the arch and found some flecks of paint. And so they have tried to at least digitally, they, they haven't put a brush to the arch. They haven't done anything like that uh, to deface what has been the result of, of centuries of this standing out in the open. But they have uh, done a digital reconstruction and here we have it. Let me see if I can see it and, and describe it too. And this is the triumphal entry of Titus's celebrating Titus's victory over Judea. And what we have here is the representation of the table of showbread, which is, uh, let me see if I can get my hand working right. There it is. The table of showbread, the silver trumpets, and then the golden candlestick from inside the holy place, both the uh, table of showbread and the candelabra, the candlestick from inside the holy place that since they were so valuable and so uh, special, they were paraded by themselves to show the people of Rome what was brought to them. Uh, and then there would have been wagons full of gold and silver and other uh, artworks. And some of the other things may have been melted down before they ever got to Rome and then just cast on the wagons. And they, this would show them how mighty that the warriors were and how uh, profitable it was for them to keep supporting the army and uh, keep expanding the kingdom or the empire. So uh, after the triumph, after this big parade that, that went a, a specified route through the uh, city of Rome, after that, there came a time when for the next several days, the party continued as uh, bread and circuses kept the populace entertained, uh, largely at the expense of the conquering general. Uh, and he paid for it out of the loot that was confiscated uh, during the war. Uh, these uh, triumphs would oftentimes launch or further the political career of some of these uh, military generals, the, the great leaders that had added to the size of the empire. And uh, many of the captives that were brought in chains or however they were brought, after the day of the triumph when their leaders were sacrificed while the, while the commanding general was in the temple of Jupiter or Ju uh, Jupiter and Juno and Minerva offering oxen outside the captains of the conquered people would also be killed as a sacrifice. And then many of these other people would be brought to the Colosseum or to the circus before the Colosseum was built. And there they would have to fight each other to the death, or they would have to fight the various wild animals. So during the uh, triumph, the pomp, the power, and the splendor of Rome was on broad display for all to see. It was quite a show. Uh, a week long or more holiday 
celebrating the power, the, the might, the destructive ability of the city of Rome. Now let's do a little contrast with the triumph in Jerusalem. It's a backwater capital. It's not the center of the universe. It's a spontaneous celebration. It was unannounced. In fact, the disciples didn't even know anything was going to happen until Jesus sent two of them on to get the donkey for the day. There were uh, no trumpets, no official recognition. There were no spoils of war. Jesus wasn't a fighter. There were no captives. There was no military parade. The honoree, Jesus, was not proudly showing himself before the, the um, uh, great company for their adulation. In fact, he was at one point saddened and brought to the point of tears as he entered the city. He was received and lauded not by the elite of the city. With the Roman triumph, the senators would march in the parade right behind the general. But Jesus was received and lauded by the rabble. <clears throat> there were no flowers, no incense, few palm branches, cloaks thrown on the road for the donkey to walk on. Whereas the highlight of the triumph was the general going into the temple and making his sacrifice, Jesus really wasn't welcome in the temple. He was, when he was there, he was rebuked by the religious leaders. They shut down the crowd as best they could, especially the children. And even though the fortress Antonia was right there, almost connected to, maybe even connected to, the temple grounds, the temple area, we find when, when Paul's ruckus came, the, the soldiers poured down into the temple area and rescued him. But there is not a single indication that I have been able to find that the soldiers even knew anything special was going on when Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem. The soldiers in the barracks of the fortress Antonia evidently weren't involved. They didn't notice anything going on. There was no chariot. There were no magnificent matched war horses. Jesus just came in on a smelly little donkey. The donkey hadn't been washed and combed. It wasn't made presentable. It's just tied up. They took it from there. Is a donkey that had never before been ridden. Let me just real quickly here talk about one thing, and that's the conveyance, the, the donkey and the horses. Now, in the scripture, horses, war horses in particular, uh, the Lord told them not to get involved with war horses as, uh, as his people. Psalm 20 and 7 says, some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Hosea 14 and 3 says, Assyria cannot save us, nor can war horses. Never again will we say to the idols we have made, you are our gods. No, in you alone do the orphans find mercy. So it, it was a matter of, we, they were not supposed to have these war horses. They were not supposed to depend on war horses on their army. And how did that work out for them? The folks who had war horses at this point were running the city. And any of the Jewish leaders who were leaders were leaders at the sufferance of the Romans. 
Now, they could have, Jesus could have ridden on a mule. Second Samuel 13, 29 tells us. So uh, Absalom, at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. So here we find mules as being a conveyance for uh, the elite, if you will, again. First Kings 1 and 33, the king said to them, this is King David when Adonijah tried to take the, the throne and David uh, short-circuited that by appointing Solomon to be his successor. And he said, take Solomon and my officials down to Gihon Spring. Solomon is to ride on my own mule. So again, it's a, it's a symbol of royalty and of power within the Hebrew nation. But donkeys? Exodus 4 and 20 says, So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand, he carried the staff of God. What's the donkey for? It's to carry the, the uh, wife and kids. Numbers 22, 21 so the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. What was it? A donkey was nothing all that special. It was just a way to get from point A to point B. And this is what Jesus used for his triumphal entry. I'm beginning to question the term triumphal. Oh, yes, we know it was a triumph. But anybody who doesn't have our 2,000 years of looking back on what happened in the next couple of weeks. It was pitiful. It was kind of like expecting a, a circus and finding out it's the neighborhood kids putting on a show. In, instead of elephants, some kid's got his goat out there. Instead of try, the lion tamer with lions and tigers, <laughs> Fido is rolling over, playing dead and shaking hands. It was a pitiful triumph. It was so no triumph not at this point this is a bunch of losers anybody who'd ever seen a triumph would have just walked off in disgust this is not a triumph this is a joke well I don't want to leave it completely there but I've got a zinger here too. In Ephesians chapter four and verse eight, that's why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he, Jesus, led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Oh, we're following this triumph theme of the conquering general, uh, bread and circuses and uh, maybe even cash. Oh, but then verse 11 tells us, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. If you were looking for a party, and instead you get a preacher? If you were looking for entertainment that's not the gift jesus was giving triumphal entry it's a bit of an oxymoron when you talk about jerusalem it's a religion for losers if we stop right there as he goes into the city then that's what i'm going to have to tell you we are looking at we're looking at something that is a joke this is a religion or losers. Stephen? All right, everybody. 
So now it is time for questions. And uh, I'm sure that you all have enjoyed this study tonight. I know that I have. And um, it brings to mind the scripture that the Lord spoke to his people. And uh, I believe it was through the prophet Isaiah, but I don't know that for sure. When he told them, he says, look, folks, I don't think like you think. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As far apart as the heavens and the earth are, and I don't even know how far that is, Dad, because it never, it just, just keeps going. So, but he says, as far as those are apart, that's how far it is apart, how I think and how you think. And then it brings to mind even um, following Gethsemane, back to Arash's timeline, following Gethsemane is standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate is flexing his Roman muscles and saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I represent? Do you not understand? And on a little side note, Pontius Pilate probably never saw even an ovation, let alone no. a triumphant. He uh, wasn't a general as far as I know. No, he did not have anywhere near. In fact, Rome had a bad habit of sending, unfortunately, its weaker governors, its weaker leaders to backwater places. And that's what would have been in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem and Judea was a backwater is a backwater capital. Absolutely. It was, uh, they thought it was something. Israel thought it was something. But from the Roman perspective, it was nothing. It was, Hold on. in fact, they didn't even want to stay there. They would stay actually on a city that Herod had built out on the coast called Caesarea Maritima. But the bottom line is uh, Pontius Pilate has Jesus standing in front of him and he flexes his muscles at him, so to speak, and says, look, do you know who I am? Do you not know that I'm the governor? Uh, do you not know that I represent Rome? And Jesus' response was was a very quiet statement. My kingdom's not of this world. I'm operating by a different set of rules that you don't even understand. Um, and and so the it seems to me that what we've looked at tonight reminds us of that. Um, that even how he entered Jerusalem and what many try to call the triumphal entry, he was just looking at it differently. It meant something different to Jesus, and how he did it was very different. So, um, very good tonight. All right, question time, I, I, Dad. I think you've either overwhelmed them, or they are, or they are. They're trying to figure out because I, unless I'm mishandling, I'm not seeing a whole lot of questions here, folks. And I'm warning you, unless you want Dad and I to just kind of sit here and shoot the breeze, which I can warn you, we're both pretty good at doing that. Um, if you're ready for some corny jokes, you know, dad's got them up his sleeve. You got any about the triumphal entry, dad? Did you have any corny jokes that you ran across? No, I, I didn't do that. All I right. Do, I do know that the triumphant general would paint his face red in order to placate Jupiter so that he would not be struck dead by angering the god of uh of uh that temple and so he was he was trying to paint he had painted his face red so that he would be recognized as part of that godhead yep which for those of you that know greek godhead jupiter was the roman equivalent of zeus and zeus was known for throwing thunderbolts so mm -hmm. um yeah the roman general wanted to avoid that all right so there's some questions starting to come in I'll, uh, I'll start with your daughter. Uh, her question was, to your knowledge, was there a significance to the donkey not being ridden before? In other words, an unbroken donkey, if you will, or an untrained donkey. Do you know if there was significance to that? To me, there's a significance. And that is that he's, con he's in control of all of creation that uh, he, he can take something that by all logic, by all human experience should not be used in this manner. And even with the crowd making all that racket around him, we see no indication that he had any trouble getting into the city and, and riding that donkey. I, I think it's just a, a matter of, the Roman generals showed their conquests or their power over their enemies in battle 
Jesus showed his power over nature by riding that donkey into the city. All right. Another question. Uh, were wives a part of the entry uh, in a, in a, uh, in a triumph? Oh yes. Uh, the general's family would be a major part of the triumph. His, his wife his his family. Uh, many times the sons of a general or a nephew, someone would start his political career as he was walking in that parade that would people would see him people would understand that he's part of this this uh, conquering family that he has these political ties and of course as i mentioned the many of the generals increased their political power through the triumph and so that kind of splashed over onto their families and uh the the rest of the family was there even not just uh, wives and children but it went to nieces and nephews and brothers and other kin folk probably everybody that could get in the street uh, would be trying to be as close to the general as they could yeah I can add two things to that I do know that uh, one of the greatest uh, emperors uh, in fact many place the founding of the Imperium or the Roman Empire, as we know it, the transition from the Republic to the Empire itself uh, at the feet of, of a emperor we know as Caesar Augustus. And uh, Caesar Augustus was actually, his name was Octavius. Octavius was actually only the nephew uh, of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar served under uh, the, the time and the era of the Roman uh what we know as the Roman Empire, but it was known then as the as the Republic, mm -hmm. governed by by the Senate and uh, by by tribunes and so forth. And uh, Julius Caesar, of course, was killed because he shook that political system up. Because as an emperor, or excuse me, as a general, he he pulled to himself a lot of power. In fact, he would have celebrated. I don't know off the top of my head, but he would have celebrated. Uh, triumphs. And it was during that season, just as uh, Pastor Roy has, has described, that he accrued a lot of political power. And uh, but that political power then upon his upon his um, assassination was marshaled by not his son. He didn't have a son, but actually by an adopted son who was, in fact, his nephew. Um, and so it was it was critically important. Another element, too, that was interesting uh, that I can add a little wrinkle here that's a little amusing. Uh, Dad mentioned uh, that a general to celebrate the triumph could not enter the Roman city until he had laid down his arms, until he had laid down his, his ability to create war. In fact, you were not, even if you were not celebrating a triumph, you were not allowed to enter right. into the city armed. Well, the Roman generals were not beyond, particularly in later years, were not beyond um, coming to the city of Rome with all of their army and implying that Rome was under threat if they were not granted their triumph. Yeah. Because <laughs> they would camp outside the city, and there are stories of them having camped outside the city for uh, weeks and even several months while waiting for the Senate to do its political monitoring and grant them their triumph. So there was manipulation that would be involved there. Uh, there was a massive amount of pride. One of the things that I think is important for us to recognize as we're contrasting these two things is that there was, a, there, there was an ego that was beyond belief. Yes, they would do their various things, such as paint their faces and, and, and have the slave whispering in their ear, but these... These men were absolutely, let's just put it this way. Our politicians are humble in their oh, conduct goodness. by comparison, like beyond belief. Um, and so there, there was a lot of that. And so when you think about the pride and the arrogance and even the, the, the demand for honor of self in contrast 
to Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. And we, of course, know that he was entering not to receive accolades, but in fact to be condemned, to in fact be beaten, to in fact be crucified. In fact, these Roman generals could not be crucified. Right. They, by definition, could not be flogged because of their citizenship, because of their status. And so here comes the God of the universe entering on an unbroken donkey, coming into the capital of a backwater province to be condemned by his own people and then in turn to be condemned by uh, the Roman authorities. And the entire world was his kingdom. His army was angels uncounted. And yet there was a humility. He came lowly, as I think, Dad, you referenced an Old Testament passage that talked about, look, Israel, your king is coming lowly and humble and riding on a donkey. And so the contrast could not be any more stark, if you will. And uh, our gospel writers knew what they were doing when they painted these pictures, when they included these stories the way that they did, because they wrote in a Roman context. Right. That was the context in which they wrote. Their audience would have recognized. Oh, they picked it up the symbolism, if you will, but also the contrast of that symbolism. And um, there was no human being that had ever been more powerful than Jesus. And yet he conducted himself in a manner that was so incredibly humble in contrast to what powerful men of that time period uh, did and the triumph the reason we drew for you tonight uh, this contrast is for you to recognize from a worldly perspective, this was a loser move. Mm -hmm. He was not creating capital. He was not, because all of Rome would exalt in these times. It was party time. It was a celebration of what wealth and power had been brought to Rome, all the slaves would would march in chains behind. Exotic animals would be brought. I mean, it was just a massive, massive. Think of military parade. Think about just a literal exercise and demonstration of of sheer power. And there was quite a. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but there was quite a process that they had to go through starting on the battlefield in order to have one of these triumphs. In fact, it was to such a place that the Senate of Rome, if you see the Roman symbols, the eagle and the and SPQR, that's the Senate and populace of Rome. But that Senate that led the entire nation had to go outside the walls of Rome to meet with the general. I mean, that's the kind of power that he was uh, he was exercising, that the entire Senate had to leave town to go meet him because he couldn't come in. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, when Dad mentioned SPQR, you see that many times with the wreath and the and the and the and the eagle stands for Senatus Populusque Romanus, the Senate and the Roman people. But at that point, basically, the premise was is that the Roman people would come and basically beg that Roman general to come in and receive their adulation, their thanksgiving for having, quote unquote, saved them. And that was course, the next step. That's right. And uh, and that was kind of a reversal in that Jesus, who was the true savior of us, um, was condemned by the very people that the death that he was about to experience was going to save. The very hands that strung him up, the very hands that beat and flogged him, they were who he was saving. Mm -hmm. It just really brings home this whole, his way is not our way and his thought is not our thought. It just, it really is. So we have uh, another question that's come in. How do you think Jesus' triumphal entry got started? Do you think it just spontaneously erupted? Did Jesus precipitate it? How do you think it got started? 
I'm not sure exactly what you mean by started, but I think he had every step of the way planned. Now, once he got on the donkey, these people knew the scriptures. These were the, your dedicated people, people that had made a long journey to be there for Passover. So they were familiar. Many of them were very familiar with the scriptures. And so when they saw Jesus get on that donkey and realized it was a colt, a donkey colt, it, it was just a short step from there to prophecies being fulfilled. I've got to get in on this. And it, it's like, uh, well, almost a mob scene from there that it spreads and, and people start asking, who is this? What's going on? Uh, I envision it kind of like a, uh, now things may have changed since I grew up, but I kind of figure it as, as though someone was on a junior high campus during lunchtime and somebody yells fight and they start coming from all directions to see what's going on. All it needed was a spark, somebody to start it. His disciples put their coats on the, the donkey. That's the same symbolism that happened when Jehu was anointed king in the days of Elijah. And, and so they see that, wow, something important is happening. I want to be in on this. Praise the Lord. Let me worship God. Uh, and I, I see what's happening here. And, and so it, it was just kind of like snowball rolling downhill. It gathered steam as it went. And of course, the, the religious leaders didn't like it. They tried to shut it down. And, and Jesus let them know, you shut this down and it's going to bust out somewhere else. The very rocks will cry out. Do you know whether the palm branches, was that a symbolism as well, predating, or is that something that got picked up from there that we now put symbolism to? I think it's probably both. I think it was already symbolic, and then we have re-emphasized and strengthened the symbolism of it. Kind of a in place of flags and things like that. It's a yeah. way of, of, of doing so. Who could afford a flag? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Sister Betty had a question. Uh, she said, didn't Jesus actually demonstrate his absolute power, however, when he entered the temple and threw the sellers out and did miracles by healing? Uh, Dad, I'll let you take a crack at that first, and then I'll opine a, a second or two on that as well. His absolute power? Yes. He, uh, he showed who owned the temple, whose house it was, uh, by... But and the thing is, they could ask him to leave. They but they didn't throw him out. They he had free reign there. There was such a a force about him. There, you know that there are some people that are almost. We've heard the term. They're a force of nature. Another term that's been used is they suck all the oxygen out of the room. There's some people who just have it. Jesus had that, especially in this time, which makes his humbling himself to the death of the cross that much more spectacular. In that, when they ask him in the garden, uh, he asks, Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And they fell to their knees. They fell. I was, was going to reference that point exactly is that. There was a power about him at times that he would let out. And, and it's possible, though the scriptures do not tell us this, it's possible that that's why he was able to maintain that kind of control. We know he taught with a power and an authority that they had never heard before. Um, and of course, no surprise there. Nobody knew their Bible better than Jesus. <laughs> our kids, he wrote it. <laughs> well, our kids class, one of our teachers was being a little ornery and and said, um, how many books of the Bible did Jesus write? And I happened to be in the kitchen and I went, oh, that isn't fair. That isn't fair at all. You know, because on the one hand, he didn't write any of them, yeah. humans. On the other hand, he wrote all of them in the sense of his, of his inspiration. So, of course, he understood 
and knew the scriptures there. Um, in contrast to that, I would add, though, Sister Betty, that what we're also seeing, though, is that while the temple was known as one of the ancient world's wonders, Herod had beautified the Jewish temple to such a place that it was one of the ancient wonders of the world, and it was it was a spectacular temple. It still was a temple to a god that the Roman Empire and the Greek culture of the Roman Empire did not understand. There's stories of Pompey, one of these generals who had multiple triumphs. Yeah. He was known as Pompey the Great. He was also, he was a very large man, a big-headed man, both literally and physically. Uh, physically and, and literally in a physical sense, but then also in, in, in the sense of his pride. Their story of him, he in fact, there was a, there was a fight that was going on over who was ruling uh, Judea in that area. And uh, you never invite the Romans in. It's kind of like the Americans. If they ever come in, they're always going to leave a, a force behind. They're never going to leave you. And so they made the mistake of inviting the Romans in. And the Roman they invited in was Pompey. And it's reported, of course, the the um, destruction of the first temple and, and of Solomon's temple. And, uh, and they had lost the Ark of the Covenant. They did not have the Ark of the Covenant. And so Pompey had heard about this Jewish God. And so he sweeps into the temple and he doesn't pay any attention. He walks right into the holiest of holies and he sweeps the curtain aside, which of course was to the horror of every Jewish person there. They, they were just scandalized. But what could they do? The Roman Empire and the Roman army was present there with Pompey and Pompey was not a man to be that impressed at all. And he was dumbfounded because he found a room that was empty. He mm -hmm. just stood there and he just shook his head and walked out. He said, this is a crazy place. So, on the one hand, yes, power was being demonstrated from our vantage point, but from the Roman vantage point, from the dominant culture's vantage point, the fact that Jesus did a dust-up in this backwater temple that, yes, was beautiful. Herod had made it a, a beautiful wonder of the world. It was not, it was not a, a power that was recognizable, which drives our point to you all uh, this week, is that leading up to Calvary and to the resurrection, this, by all accounts, if you get rid of all the knowledge we have subsequent, if you get rid of the knowledge and the revelation that comes through Calvary and the resurrection, it's a bunch of losers. It's no names. It's people that are doing stuff that doesn't make any sense. It does not look like it's working. And it's just an absolute loss. And I think our point, if I can put a capstone to this as we draw to the close, we're at eight o'clock and so we're wrapping it up, is I think our point is not to call what we believe a religion, a losing religion, but rather it is to recognize that God operates in ways that do not make sense from a worldly or a carnal or even a powerful position. And he will use people that the world would say, what can happen through these people? And God says, watch me, watch what I do. Uh, I'd encourage you don't miss our Friday night with friends this week. Uh, we've got a theme and we'll unfold it for you. But my good friend, uh, Jerry McLean is gonna be with us. And we're gonna talk about what happens when ordinary people make themselves available to an extraordinary God. And that's kind of the story of this week. Ordinary people, people that from the world's perspective, we would call losers in the hands of a God who is most powerful can do extraordinary things. I hope you've enjoyed tonight. Thank you, Pastor Roy, for the lesson tonight. Comments have all been very positive. They very much enjoyed the lesson tonight. You don't want to miss tomorrow night. We'll be back at seven o'clock again. Uh, be sure and check us out at newyorkupc.info. Make yourself available to all that is available to you there. You can learn more about us, partner with us, submit prayer requests, baptism requests, all of those kinds of things. Those of you that are part of the church, pray for us this week. A couple of big decisions being made to, for the next phase of the church renovation. And so pray that the Lord's hand will be upon that, uh, upon our insurance adjuster as he makes some decisions, some things that need to be approved by him and also by the insurance and uh, we'll begin the next step. All of the mold has been remediated from the building. And so now we're, we're ready to get down to the business of building back. And uh, so we'll keep you posted on all of that. 
And uh, again, if this is your first time with us, check out our website and drop us drop in on that card. I'm new and uh, give us your contact info. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, for all the rest of you, God bless. I hope you've enjoyed this evening. We will be back again tomorrow night, 7 p.m. And then also on Friday night at 7 p.m. with our friends, Friday night with friends. Don't want to miss it. It's going to be a great week. And then we're looking forward to Saturday closing out this series here. And then Sunday we will celebrate Easter and uh, have communion. And uh, we're just excited. It's going to be a great week. And then we'll actually turn the corner from Easter and look at how God redeems these losers. So you don't want to miss it. Our broadcasts are every night, Tuesday through Sunday, uh, every single week at 7 p.m. And uh, we encourage you to join us again. All right, everybody. Thanks, Dad, for the, a great lesson. Good night, everyone. Have a great night.